Let me start off saying this, that um, I do apologize ahead of time if at times I cough or have to stop, get a drink. Um, Last Sunday morning I started struggling and Sunday evening it got worse. And uh, when I went to doctors this week they said you have a bad case of laryngitis. So it's been really strange. I had a Zacharias experience all week long. And the first time I've spoken at any length of time was the first service earlier. And uh, so my wife is in glory. She's enjoying this. But um, if I have to pause, I apologize and I appreciate your patience. I was standing out front and I was greeting the folk and several of you out there. And so I had my, my seasonal hat on, which is warmer than my other hat. And I'm standing out there and one of the youngsters came running up to me and said, For Christmas, I want a yo-yo. <laughs> Um, I don't know if the parents sigged him on me or not, but um, I'll see if I can get that yo-yo for him if nobody else does. We are in Luke chapter 2. Speaking of Christmas, we want to get things straight for the Christmas story. So we're doing a series that's called The Scenes of Christmas. And with that in mind, uh, we're going to be in Luke 2 this morning and also in this evening. We'll be in the second part of the chapter, and then we'll pick up again next Sunday. On Christmas Eve, we'll do something a little bit different, but it'll be a clear gospel presentation. But we're glad that you're here. Those of you online, we'd hope that this series is helping you as you focus on the Christmas season, just to keep the right focus. And when I was thinking, preparing for this morning, I was thinking about the different customs that take place around the world when it comes to children being born. In America, we have the customs that when children are born, we give those families a gift. Now we have a new custom that's developed, and that is reveal, whether it be through cakes or through some, some escapade that they reveal even ahead of time what the gender is, becoming a new culture custom. In Japan, they have the culture custom that when the child is born, three weeks at the mother's, the new mom's parents' house, she stays in bed, she gets taken care of for the solid three weeks. In Brazil, when somebody comes and visits, you who are the new parents, you give them a gift in appreciation for them coming. In China, the first 30 days, the mom doesn't leave the house, doesn't eat certain foods, doesn't bathe or shower. Now, when we were in China, they did the bathing and showering, but they would not wash their hair for 30 days because it was some type of tradition associated with the baby. In Bali, don't let the children's feet touch the ground for a period of time, and that is because once they touch the ground, then they are now tied to this world, not the world they came from. And the idea of the same thing in the Hindu uh, religion, faith, that in different countries they do a little bit different, but in the first three or somewhere, they shave the child's head and usually burn the hair so as they break off all connections with previous lives. In the Navajo tribe, what they used to do was they used to think when the baby first laughs, that's an indication that the baby now is really settled into this world and not the world from which they came from ahead of time. And in the Navajo Nation, if you were the one who made the child laugh, you have to pay for the celebration that follows. In the, here, here in our Bible days, when we come to what we're talking about in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, understand the setting. In the Jewish culture, when a baby was born, you dads, you would invite moms, you would invite close family or friends to come and celebrate the birth. And just like you would do with a funeral, you would hire musicians for a funeral to show your sorrow and your pain, and you would hire dirgers to do their moaning and singing. When your child's born, you would hire musicians who would accompany the party or announce the party so that everybody knows that there's this celebration. Isn't it interesting? In that Jewish culture, and there's that custom, in Luke chapter 2, 
the birth of Christ, God invites close family and friends to come, and he has his own choir, musicians, that make the announcement. We're in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're picking up in the middle of the birth story where we read in verse 8. And there were in the, she in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, just as it was told unto them. As we look at the story... The, we know that it happened in Bethlehem. We talked a bit about this last Sunday evening, if you were with us, how they ended up in Bethlehem and the census and all those background information. But this is that place where Mary and Joseph ended up traveling and understanding this was predicted that they would be here. It's, it's kind of uh, ironic how this all fits together. Bethlehem, the name literally means the house of bread. And the reason it was called that was because this was a very fertile region. It was the breadbasket of all of the area of Judea. Isn't it kind of ironic that this house of bread, this village, is the place where the real bread of life is birthed? Jesus Christ arrives at this moment, at this time, from that region that says, we're going to feed everybody in this land. We could do it. Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread of life, and I will give you the spiritual food that you need. Well, at the time that it happens, we have, uh, we have a lot of history there in Bethlehem. Bethlehem has the history of, this is where Rachel had died when she gave birth to Benjamin. This is the place where Ruth met Boaz. This is the place where David grew up. It's very close to Jerusalem within just a short period of time. And it is the very region where the shepherds who were, I'm sorry, let's back up, where the, the sheep which were sacrificed in Jerusalem, this is the area that most of those sheep came from. If you traveled to Jerusalem and you bought your sheep, well, the sheep were usually raised right around Bethlehem. Isn't, again, something that's kind of funny, that the bread of life shows up in the town called the house of bread. <clears throat> that the, the one who is the Passover lamb is born in the very region where most of the Passover lambs were raised at that time. And so you look at the story, there's a lot of details, but there are several factors that stand out to me, and I'm just going to break it down in just a very simplistic way. We want to look at this factor, first of all, God's association with commoners, with the down and outers. Now, we know that that happened already, that God was <coughs> spending a lot of time with Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth, just common people, that God himself is born in, an, in a barn where they're housing animals. God doesn't, doesn't get paranoid about getting his hands dirty. But when it comes to associating with commoners, it's the shepherds that really stand out. When you think about it, 
that the shepherds of that time, even though we think that they were very heroic according to the Old Testament, and they were back in previous years and previous times, they were looked at as very, very commendable. They were looked at as being a really good profession. But when we come to the New Testament era, after 400 years of silence, things have changed. And by the time of the New Testament, don't take this as an offense to any of you who are doing these things, but when it, when it came to the time of the shepherds in the New Testament era, you had lepers here, tax collectors, <coughs> and then you had the shepherds. The shepherds would be on low scale in most people's minds like car salesmen and politicians today. And so we think that, the, well, that's, no, the shepherds were an ideal, a looked-up-to class. They really weren't. They were seen by the Jews as unclean people for the most part, that they couldn't get themselves clean. In fact, they weren't even allowed to worship and do a lot of stuff at the synagogue, at the, at the temple. And a lot of them didn't even get an get a invite to come to the local synagogue. As a whole, they weren't even allowed to testify in courts because they were individuals who were so despised. And when you go back and think, try to think about that, you know, is it true? Well, we read in a commentary, a Jewish commentary, <clears throat> that writes about the shepherds from Psalm 23 that it's a disreputable occupation. Uh, further towards the time of Christ, shepherding their inglorious pursuits. And the reason this happened is that the shepherds, by the time of Jesus' day, they worked seven days a week, no Sabbath day off. So they were considered unclean that they, they wouldn't associate and go to the feast days. <clears throat> they were unclean in the sense that they handled animals all the time, dead carcasses. They had to fend off the wild animals that would attack. If they were dealing with sheep giving birth, they were dealing with blood. They were dealing with carcasses. And so they were considered to be a real low-class individual, unclean. In fact, they, as all the different jobs of that time, their kids didn't go to school. Most of the kids living in town or in a village, they would get to go to school. But the shepherd's kids, they were put out in the fields very early. So the more illiterate people of that society were the shepherds more than anybody else. And so if somebody was a dropout or if somebody needed a job, they would become a hireling, a shepherd. And they were considered then usually the more despicable class, as we already mentioned, way down on that low level. And what's amazing is when you think about the story in Luke chapter 2, God invited that low-level class to be the first ones to come to see his child that was just born. That God says, hey, I'm going I'm to throw this birthday party, and I'm going to invite the shepherds. He didn't send a special invitation to the temple. He didn't call the priests. He didn't call the nobility. He called the shepherds. The shepherds who would be downtrodden, would be looked down upon by other people. The, the, the shepherds were more like you and I in our day and age where we're looked down by people who may have greater wealth or people who may have greater position in government than most of us. And we feel like, hey, you know, sometimes those people in authority, they abuse us and they use us. Well, that's the way the shepherds felt. And the shepherds were of that point where they are, they are inviting, they are invited to come. And we understand this. This became characteristic of Jesus' whole life. That Jesus associated with sinners. That Jesus, you know, he hugged the lepers. Nobody else would do that. So it's very common and very understandable that God would do that. But not only does God invite those shepherds who are low class and commoners to come and have fellowship with his son, but he identifies with them. 
He's, he's the one that, that what he did is he identified with commoners as a whole. We understand that. He, the Nazarenes and what they said about them. Jesus working as a carpenter. But think about this. When Jesus, as he grew even older, he identified with the shepherds. What that must have been like when Jesus gave a sermon and the Pharisees heard it that he says, I am the good shepherd. They would have thought, oh, wait a minute. You're, you're identifying with that low-class people. And then the New Testament highlights it even more. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And then to top it off, the title that he gives to the leaders of the church are shepherds. And so God's really displaying in a very illustrative story sense, God's telling us that he wants fellowship with common people. You don't have to have multiple religious degrees to be close to the Father. You don't have to have all kinds of wealth. You don't have to have all kinds of ability. Any single one of us can have fellowship with the Father. He wants that with all of us, any of us. Please don't take this wrong. Don't take it wrong that I don't think that you know, you're super talented or you're not good looking. But what I want you to just get out of this, are these thoughts that are written here, is the idea that God wants your fellowship. It doesn't make any difference about your bank account. It doesn't make any difference what degree you have. It doesn't make any difference what talents you have. It doesn't make any difference what age you are. God wants fellowship with you. And so the shepherd story to me is one of the sweetest and one of the neatest of all the stories because of God's association with common folk. But there's something else that stands out. The angel's description of the babe. As you look at this and hear this week, you're going to have opportunity, a lot of you, when you get together Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, you're going to read this portion. When you read this portion as a family, think in depth what the angel is saying. When the angel is describing Christ, the Christ child, think what it meant to the shepherds and the people of that day and to us. But we're so distanced from that time, the, the names, the titles don't impact us the way they should. The angel comes. And remember, there has been no direct message from God for 400 years. Malachi closed out the Old Testament 400 years, and it's been silence, total silence. No visions, no dreams, no angelic messages, no revelation, until about a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, all of a sudden, you have Zacharias getting a, a dream, an angel talking in the temple. Then you have Mary getting an angel visiting her. You know, months ago. Then you have Joseph having the angel come. This is now the next tidbit of revelation that has come, the first group that has come in 400 years. And when the angel comes, it's very unexpected, <clears throat> low, totally out of the dark, out of the blue, if you would, this angel, and I don't know which angel it is. It was Gabriel that talked to Zacharias, Gabriel that talked to Mary, Gabriel that talked to Joseph. We don't know if it's Gabriel leading the pack. But whoever it is, the angel comes upon him, and the angel makes this comment. Okay? Well, I forgot I wanted to add this as well. And the glory of the Lord shone round about when the angels are... Do you know what this is referring to? The glory of the Lord is a reference to the Old Testament Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory was that term that was used for the visible light, brilliant light that symbolized God was there. It was like that pillar of fire that led in the wilderness. It was that light, that fire, that all of a sudden when the tabernacle was built, all of a sudden came down from heaven and abode on the tabernacle. It was when they dedicated the temple, all of a sudden they see the Shekinah glory, a brilliance of light, come down and take its residence inside the Holy of Holies. 
And it's also the same thing that Ezekiel saw. When Ezekiel writes that right around 600 B.C., when Israel was walking away from the Lord, he saw the Shekinah glory leave the Holy of Holies, go to the courtyard of the temple, go into the, by the gate of, of Jerusalem, go on to the hillside by the Mount of Olives, and then ascend back up into heaven. It's been nearly 600 years since anybody has seen a visible representation of this brilliance that was a picture of God's presence. Angels are out there, or shepherds are out there. An angel appears, something that would have surprised any one of us. And then all of a sudden, more angels appear. And then this glory of God that would be a blinding light. No wonder the passage says they were sore afraid. They were, they were terrified. Would they die in the presence of God? What, was the, what were these angels doing? Giving them good news? Giving them bad news? Judging them? And the angel speaks up and the angel says, you know, he says, you know, the first thing angels always said was stop being afraid. <laughs> I always laugh at that. You know, you're terrified. Don't be nervous. Right. Okay, stop being afraid. I have good tidings. Literally, I have good news. I have a gospel to tell you of great joy. And so he tells us what the good news is about, I'm telling you about somebody very special. I want you to catch the titles. And you may not realize this is the first time in all of Bible recorded history. There's no other, you won't find this anywhere else in the Old Testament, that these three titles are used in one singular verse. It's the first time. In fact, you won't find it very much in the New Testament either. But all of a sudden he says, I want to tell you about a Savior, Christ the Lord. These three descriptive terms come from the mouth of an angel who has come from heaven, and he understands what he's talking about. The angel is saying to them, I'm talking, I'm telling you about a soter, or if he was speaking in Aramaic and Hebrew, a Yeshua, part of the name of Jesus. I'm telling you about somebody who's come to deliver. The judges were called saviors. The idea of somebody coming and rescuing when you were attacked and you were, you, you were under, about to die, a savior. Somebody who would pay your penalty so you could get out of debt or debtor's prison, a savior. Somebody who you were, you, were, you were in bondage. You were a slave and they bought you and set you free. That's a soter. And this is the same title that Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time, he used about himself. So people knew this title. People understood this. When Jesus called himself a savior, they understood this was somebody who was rescuing me. Somebody who was going to free me. Somebody who was getting me out of prison. And so when this angel is saying, this one who I'm telling you about right now is savior, the shepherds understood that. Even though they were illiterate in many ways, they understood commerce. They understood selling. They understood bondage. They understood debt. They understood slavery. They understood all that. And so this person is very special. This is one who is redeeming people. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the savior. But then he adds this other title. He says it is Christos in the Greek. It would be Messiah would be the Old Testament equivalent. And so he's talking about the one that was predicted throughout the entire Old Testament that was going to be in the family lineage of David. And when he would come, he's going to set up a throne, God's heavenly throne. They're Jews. They understand the kingdom coming. They know that Jesus, or they know that David's son will eventually rule and reign on earth. 
And this one, they, when he says, this is Messiah, that's a heavenly title for a king. So they understand this is divine royalty. This baby that you're telling me about, he's savior. He is divine royalty. And then they use this other term. The term doesn't impact us unless we go back and again look at, hey, what was done? The, the Hebrews at this time weren't using a Hebrew Bible for the most part. They were using a Greek translation. The Greek translation was called the Septuagint or LXX. You'll see it. The LXX used Kyrios. Most every time where Jehovah was or Yahweh in the Hebrew, they translated it at Kyrios. So the 6,000 times where in the Old Testament you would read Jehovah or Lord, they would be reading Kyrios. And so they understood by this point that Kyrios was another name for God. And so they would think, this angel speaking, this angel from heaven is saying, Savior, Heavenly King, God in the flesh. But that would impact those men. The angels would know. The angels are on the inside. They've got the inside story. They've seen what's happened from heaven. And so all of a sudden you can understand why there would be this tremendous, tremendous response and excitement because the angel is saying this is God in the flesh. This is the Savior of all mankind. This is the future ruler of the earth. And they would understand that more than we would. All of a sudden you have all these angels breaking out in chorus. It makes sense. They all know this is God in the flesh. They all know this is your hope. This is the one who will make it possible for you, you shepherds, you commoners in Lebanon. This is the one who makes it possible for you to be able to enter into heaven. He is the one that's going to rule in heaven. He is the one who is God in the flesh. No wonder there's this enthusiasm from the angelic host to just break out in glorious praise and honor and excitement about this baby. And when they break out, you know, some will say, well, how many angels were there? Well, I know it's more than a couple. I know it's bigger than a trio or a quartet. You know, I don't know the exact number. All we read is a multitude. And we know that sometimes when it calls angels multitudes, they refer to them with thousands and thousands or millions. How many there were? I don't know that night. Did they actually sing? Well, the word that's translated here, praising and saying, it's the word aineo. That's the same word in that Greek translation of the Hebrew, that LXX, that Septuagint. Wherever in the book of Psalms you read Hallel, Hallelujah, Hallel, the word Hallel has the idea of praise or sing. You have this same word. That's why many assume it's praising and singing because that was the common word used in their Bible of the day for singing out the Psalms. And so whether they sang or what they did, we don't know exactly, but it seems like they were singing. My question is this. If you've got a million-voice choir singing and this brilliant light that has just exploded across the sky, how far away did they hear it? I mean, when the gap is in operation, we, we hear it here, Right? The noise when there's when there's things in the sky going on in your in pitch darkness, you can see towns far away by the light that's shining. I don't know. You don't know either. Was it something that God muffled so it was just there? <clears throat> well, let's say there was twenty of us who were the shepherds, 
and we had a million voices singing at us. Wow, we, we, you know, and it was muffled. You know, it was all of a sudden like this cone of silence. Here we are on the inside, and we're hearing this, this noise that is just glorious. And it's just, man, we're feeling it to our core. Whatever the situation, we know that the angel's announcement was absolutely phenomenal. It was amazing. It was, it was just beyond description. So you have this idea, and you and I, I just want you to settle in. All these angels, they fully understand what they're doing. They get spiritual truth better than we do. They knew who this was. They're praising him because he deserves it. So we've got in our, in our concept so far, we've got gods associating with commoners. We've got angels describing a babe that's laying it out for us that this is somebody phenomenal. I want you to catch this other factor, the shepherd's reaction. The shepherd's reaction. What did they do when they heard this? How did they respond to this? Well, we know that when they first saw it, they got fearful. The angel says, calm down. But the angel has told them, Okay, in this comment, you shall find a babe wrapped. Well, that meant you got to go and search. You shall find means you got to go and look this child out. And so what do they do? What do they do? Well, if they're going to search, they need some way, you know, to figure out this child. They don't have GPS yet. So they got to figure out how do we find the child. And the angel gave them three ideas where to look. Okay, didn't give them an address. Okay. But the angel said this, go to the city of David, Bethlehem nearby. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. You will find one lying in a manger. Let's do that in a little bit in reverse. Okay, lying in a manger, as we talked about last Sunday night and explained how that would, what that kaluma would mean when there was no room in the inn and what the manger was like. The manger would be in the feeding trough, the stone or the wooden the place where the hay or the oats would be put. And so that would imply this child's being born in some type of barn. Whether that's a wooden barn or a cave barn, it's being born where kids weren't be born. So guys, when you go looking, go where the flocks are kept in town, where the people keep their animals in town. And there may not have been many because most of the animals, the sheep would have been out, but they're going to go and find them inside. So they have a little bit of clue. The one clue, as I mentioned last Sunday night, that I didn't understand until studying it more this year, wrapped in swaddling clothes, I always thought, well, all babies were wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not true. Back in the Bible days, there was particularly, as several authors have indicated, (coughs) it was more unique to Galilean region. That what they would take, this strip of cloth that would be about yay wide, and it would be anywhere from 6 to 10 feet. (coughs) And they would take the child... And they would put the child's arms straight down and legs like this and wrap the child so the child couldn't move. <coughs> Excuse me a second. The reason that they would do that is the, uh, the thought was that the, the child, when they were born, they had been in such cramped quarters that <coughs> they either get their, their joints all straightened out or they're going to grow with a deformity. And so their idea was get their joints, get their bones straightened out, and they'd wrap them very tight, and they would keep them in this position for the first few days or weeks. <coughs> so think this through. Okay, the Son of God, who has been in purity and in glory, total control, 
allows himself to be wrapped up so he can't even move at all. Maybe his head. This is pure humility. When it says, born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, it's a double whammy of saying humility. Real humility by Christ. And so they get an idea that they are looking for somebody with a newborn that, that has a strange way, strange from Judea, way of wrapping up the child. So they get it all together and they figure it out. Okay? And their reaction, just, <clears throat> do you remember in history, reading the stories about when the United States was being explored? Do you remember reading some of the <clears throat> very first comments made when somebody saw the Grand Canyon for the first time? Do you remember this? That the, the people who first saw it, the whites who first saw it, they wrote in their journal these words, something big happened here. Okay? Well, the shepherds are watching and saying, hey, wait a minute, with all these angels and everything that's going on, something big is going on. So their response is they come. They come personally as a group. They come. doesn't give any indication that anybody stays behind. They come determinedly. That means they have to find them. Don't mistake to say, oh, they just walked and they followed a star. There is no star at this point. The star doesn't show up until possibly two years later. <coughs> and so they're, they're moving along and they're doing it with haste. And when you think about it, these guys have been, they're, they're out at night with their flocks. And they could be out there even if it was a winter season, as we call winter, or if it's spring, we don't know when the birth was. But they would, in Bethlehem, they would be out in the fields even in wintertime and stay with the flocks, and they would stay out there at night because they need to protect them. All of a sudden, you get this angel message that there is the Christ, the Lord, there's the Savior born. Man, they, they hasten to find him. They don't stop and say, wait a minute, this is an inconvenient hour. You know, it's pushing midnight, and, you know, whew, you know, we got to get up early crack of dawn. They don't say that. They don't say this as, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, we got a mile walk in the dark to get to Bethlehem, if that's how far they were or farther. They don't say this, you know, we've got other sheep to take care of. We've got to watch all these sheep. And they did. They they have to take care of the sheep. This is their livelihood. This is their job. If they're hirelings hired by the temple, they got to make sure these sheep survive so they can be sacrificed. This would be the priest um, prophet. And so they've got all those pressures, but at that moment, when they hear there's a Christ, there's the Savior, there's the Lord, they drop everything. They drop everything. They want to get to find him. He is more important than the bank account. He is more important than inconvenient moments. He is more important than, oh, wait a minute, you know, I want to do something else. He becomes their priority. That's why I think they're heroic. I look at this story and I think they are just, their response is so challenging that even though they're down and outers, they get it. They're not, they're not ignorant people. They might have been thought that way, but they have it so well together. They get up and they do what they need to do to get to see Jesus. So it says they came. But the passage says also that they returned and they're praising. The verbiage that's used here is they returned and they kept on glorifying. They kept on praising. It wasn't like, <clears throat> hey, we went to church and we saw something and that was really cool. Now let's forget about it because we have real life to go on. They, this was real life to them. This changed their life. This changed their thinking. 
And they were, because all of a sudden, this is the Christ. His mission, his birth. It, there's a phrase that's used in the, in the wording that it could be translated this way, for unto you is born this day. The ideas could be literally, for you, plural, is Christ born. Not just unto you, but for you. And so they're getting this. They're getting a message that God is doing something phenomenal for me. For me, they, they, won't, they won't let me go into the temple. But God sent his angels out here and the presence of God met me in the, in the pasture. God wants me to go in fellowship with his son. God wants me to be able to go and kneel before him and worship him. God chose me to be one of the first people there at the birth and arrival of his son. Where in our culture, he would invite close family and friends. God invited us to come. This is exciting. You know the problem is, we've had too many Christmases. We've gotten so used to it, we lose the thrill of what it meant. These guys, they were just, they were excited, and they found everything just as God said. They're excited, they're rejoicing, they're worshiping. Do you see what else they did in the text? Not only did they go and find Christ, take the time to find everything they could about him, not only are they rejoicing, but did you catch what else they do? It says that the third thing they do, they made known abroad. They told others. They didn't keep it to themselves. These guys are the first New Testament evangelists. These are the first time that people broadcasted the news about the arrival of Christ without hesitation, without holding back. That brings me to another really important thought of this story. We had God associates with commoners. Angels describe the Christ child. Shepherds respond or react. Can I show you something that's really phenomenal? God's utilization, God's using of common people. And I'm still focusing on the shepherds. That God says, hey guys, I'm going to have you do something different. God could have done this. Folk, God could have spread the news by having his angelic choir go everywhere. God could have had these angels go to Jerusalem, to Nazareth, to pick your town. God could have had the angels go, and the angel choir and the Shekinah glory appearing would have been an effective way of sharing the news. In fact, there's going to come a time in the the future, and we'll talk about this after the first year when we start our series on end times. There's going to come a time in the future where God will resort to angels sharing the gospel. But at this moment, at this time, God chose not to do that. Though they could have impacted people, what God uses is he uses shepherds. Shepherds who make them saying no one brought, they aren't allowed to testify in court. But God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to let you be my testifiers. I'm going to let you be my witnesses. I trust you. Nobody else will trust you. But I will trust you. Nobody else would hire you or use you. But I'm going to, I'm going to use you. I'm going to utilize you to share this good news and to tell people. You know, there are frequent times in the Bible that God uses people that nobody else would have used. Gideon defeats the enemies that come in with just 300 people. But do you remember when the story starts? 
Gideon says, I'm the least in my father's household. You're choosing me? Do you remember when David is in, in his home, God sends, he's, actually he's out in the field, God sends Samuel to his dad's house. And God has told the prophet Samuel, one of Jesse's boys is going to be the future king. And Eliab is the first one that comes walking in. And Samuel says, this is it. He looks kingly. He's got that stance, you know, that posture. He's very presidential, we would say. And God says, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the... Okay, and so, Je- so Samuel says, okay, it's not him. And Jesse has all the boys pass through. If I'm not mistaken, he does a double passing through. And this prophet says, God says it's not one of these. And Jesse goes, oops, I forgot one of the boys. You know, like you forgot him at church type thing. Okay. And he remembers David is out in the field. And David becomes the guy God uses that his own dad forgot about. When you think about people that God uses, the apostles are called foolish and unlearned men. That isn't that they were illiterate, but pretty close to it. It's the idea that they weren't trained as well as the religious leaders were trained. They didn't have PhDs or Master of Divinities or Doctor of Ministry degrees. They didn't have it. They were just common folk who didn't even grow up in learning all these things. They were fishermen, tax collectors. One of them was an assassin. And when we read, they're foolish and unearned men, but they turned the world upside down. If God can use people like that, he can use you and me. God can utilize anybody. What did he write in Corinthians? For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised has God. He's talking people. Who does God choose? God doesn't look to see who's the wealthiest, who's the most glamorous, who's the most educated. God looks, who's the most available? Who's the most desirous to be used? When God chooses to utilize people, he utilizes people with limited skills. He utilizes people who may not have all the degrees, but he uses them. God uses people who don't have to wow everybody, but they they want to serve God with tracts, with a testimony. They're they're the individuals who take simple opportunities like Christmas services, like reenactment online, like sending out a Christmas card and putting a tract inside, sharing their faith, their testimony, going to a neighbor who has a need and loving on them and helping them to develop a relationship and a rapport. God chooses the people who show the love of Christ to the downtrodden, to the discouraged. God chooses to use people who all they say to God is, I want to live the way you want me to live, and I want to be available. God uses commoners like the shepherds. I love this story. I love it. The way that the angel speaks, the way the shepherds respond, the way that God uses just average Joes, Jills, whatever, And he says, I can use you. And I want to use you. 
And I want to have fellowship with you. It's an amazing story because of God's association, because of the angel's description, shepherd's reaction, God's utilization. But we need to wrap up with this main thought. Why, what, what is the main message here? What was God doing with all this? Let me put it this way, God's intentions. God's intentions are revealed in this story by what the angel said. If you look at what the angel said, or the angels together, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. It could be translated a little bit different. Okay, It could be translated this way, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he has goodwill or is well pleased. The idea here is that the angels, all these angels that come, the angels who are from heaven, who are speaking at this moment, these angels are saying, glory to God in the highest on earth peace. God wants to give you peace. Uh, Understand, at that moment, they have the Pax Romana. They have peace in the Roman Empire. The Caesar is the only one in rule, so they call it, we have the peace like the world has never had before. But you and I know that there was still revolt and rebellion. There was still conflict. He's saying, I want to give you real peace. And by the way, it's not just to the Jews. It's to everybody. This is what the angels are speaking to the shepherds. Jewish shepherds. We are, come, we are telling you that this child is bringing real peace. This child is going to work throughout the world. This child is going to bring shalom. Shalom means more than what the UN thinks. It means more than the treaties just signed here by, by the Middle East countries. Shalom has that idea that there would be harmony within, with people and nations, but it would be complete. It would be total. Shalom has a bigger idea. It has the idea of inner harmony, inner peace. It's the idea of knowing why you are here, where you came from, where you are going. And the angel is saying, this child that's being born, he is the one that's going to answer every one of your great in-depth questions. Who made me? Why did he make me? Where will we be? Where do we go? Why am I here? He will give you fulfillment and purpose. He will give you complete contentment so you fulfill your purpose of glorifying the Lord. You and I know that answer. He will give you perfect communion with God. That communion that was broken at the Garden of Eden when mankind as a whole became enemies of God and have resisted the Lord since then and have turned to worship the creation more than the Creator, this one's going to restore. This child... Glory to God in the highest. This child is the one that represents ultimate peace and restoration and harmony between mankind, but most of all between God and mankind. He's the one that is going to bring the ultimate peace, heaven on earth. Think this through. These are angels, a vast host of angels that are confirmed in holiness. They lie not, they exaggerate not. They saw creation. They saw what had happened at the beginning. How God had created a garden of Eden. And God had perfect communion with Adam and Eve. They understood how sweet it was that the Spirit of God walked with man. And what Adam and Eve enjoyed and thrilled. They saw how Adam and Eve turned against him. 
They saw how Adam and Eve broke that fellowship. Ended up being cast out. And then they saw generation after generation of people turning from the Lord to the point that they saw that God said, they have so disappointed me, I'm going to cleanse the earth with a flood and start over. These angels are eyewitnesses to this. These angels, they know, they, they have seen, they have heard the Trinity in their, in their minds and in their speeches, in their plans. They know that the Trinity has determined that one of them, the Son of God, is coming to this earth. That he is going to come and he is going to, from eternity past, determine to give his life, to die, to restore this broken fellowship. These angels know what's going on. These angels who come from heaven, they know exactly how great heaven is. They know how wonderful it will be for you and me. We only think about it. We only hope about it. We only, we only get the, a tidbit of it. But they lived it. And now they're speaking and they're saying, Glory to God in the highest. You folk have no idea how great it is. You have no idea how much of a sacrifice this is. You have no idea, and we just want to get your attention, so we're singing at the top of our voices to say, glory to God in the highest. He is bringing ultimate peace. They know. These angels know. They marvel at it, according to the New Testament. How could God do this? They marvel. How can man be forgiven by faith? But they know the plan. They know that all we need to do is respond to Jesus Christ in faith and no longer trusting in ourselves, but trusting in God in the flesh to give us forgiveness and access to heaven. In fact, these very angels are the very ones that sing out every time some soul comes to Christ in salvation. And they're singing it. They're shouting it. They're saying glory to God in the highest because they realize they realize better than we do. They realize God wants our fellowship. And God will use us. They understand how, what the, that, that this, is, this is grace at its peak. How fortunate you people are that God would do this for you. How amazing our heavenly king would do all this for you. For each and every one of you. So their song is an invitation. Their song is an invitation for you and I to say, even though we're commoners, God will accept us. God will forgive us our sins. God will then use us. And then one day he takes us home to heaven. And he'll reward us for the work he's done through us, which go figure. <clears throat> what a picture of grace. And for one of our dear, dear friends, one of our heroes, this week has been their promotion to heaven. If you're watching or you're viewing pictures here of Barb Newton, one of our dear friends, one of our church's dear friends, she's having her first Christmas with the Lord. <clears throat> it's because she realized she, as a commoner, God would accept her. Barb wasn't this outstanding person. I think she's heroic, but... Barb wasn't this outstanding teen that had all kinds of talents and gifts and <clears throat> abilities that God couldn't help but notice because she was gleaming from planet Earth 
and caught his attention. No, she was from Anchorage. She was an average student at best in high school. She, you know, didn't learn how to cook when she was in high school and living at home. As her mom said yesterday, she was a terrible cook. Didn't want to learn it. She enjoyed working in the gas station, pumping gas for her dad's gas station through her junior, senior year, or well, actually through all of her high school. So I can relate to her that she was just a commoner. <clears throat> she, as a high school student, his senior year, her dad hired this guy who used to be in the military, but he was in between his military stints, and so he hired him to work in the garage, and he was working as a mechanic, and she got to know this new hired mechanic. She fell in love with him, and like a week or two after graduation, they got married. And Barb still wasn't this outstanding person, but they determined together they want to serve the Lord. And, and Barb had her common, goofy things. Barb talks about the time when she left Anchorage after a week of marriage, lived there her whole life, goes down towards the Gulf of Mexico where he's got military duty. The first hurricane that came, she says, I didn't have enough sense to come in from outside. She says, I stood out there, got knocked down by the wind several times, was hugging a tree by the time Alan came home. And when he drove up and said, what are you doing? I'm enjoying the storm. It's wonderful. You got to admit, she's probably like a lot of us would want to do. <clears throat> but she got saved by just calling upon Christ. And then when he and she were stationed in Germany, they gave their lives to the Lord and said, God, we'll do whatever you want. We're just common people, but we want to be available. We don't have all kinds of ability. We, we just want to be available. And they ended up, over a period of time, ended up in Portugal and the Azores Islands. And again, she, she wasn't fantastically gifted. Alan was telling us yesterday as we tried to spend time to encourage. He said in that, that whole period of time, the woman couldn't even make pancakes. Yeah. Everything else she was learning how to cook. But pancakes she never got for years. He said, that, you know, Barb shared with you how she had her, her goofy moments, her incidents. Remember hearing the time that Barb was... Alan was on a, a trip someplace to town, and so she thought she would help him out. She would help butcher the chickens so that he wouldn't have to do that and ease up some of the work. So she and the kids, you know, they got the hatchet ready. They got everything ready, but now they had to go in the chicken coop and catch the chicken. So she talks about how she had ran around. She'd run around, grabbed the chicken, got the chicken by the legs, and got it by the neck, and then she looked. Now what do I do? I'm holding this chicken. What do I, I'm supposed to chop its head off, but I, I don't have a hand free. And she got so stressed out that she just stood there until she was so stressed, oh, I strangled the chicken. <laughs> and you and I say, we're not going to serve the Lord because we don't have great ability. The greatest ability is availability. God wants to use us. If God can take a simple gal from Anchorage, no offense to Anchorage, but if he can take a simple backwoods girl from Anchorage and use her on the mission field and increase her abilities to cook and to do artwork and all those things, God can use us. God can use you. God can, God can reach down from heaven and do some great work in your heart and your life, whether you're a teen or a grandparent. God can use you whether you're, whether you're hoping to get married or you've passed into where you're single again because of death and widowhood. 
God wants to use you. So this Christmas, take the story, this portion of the scenes of Christ, and just look and say, God wants to associate with common people like you and me. God wants to use common people like you and me. And God will do it. God will do it if you just call upon Christ to be your Savior. Forget, forget having to be a part of some church or being baptized or giving money or doing all those things to get your way to heaven. Now, all those things have a place, but they don't get you to heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's the reason that we get into heaven. Put your faith in him. You say, but I don't have a whole lot to give him. That's okay. He loves you just the same. What do I do beyond that? Just serve. Serve and watch God use you. Common people God wants to associate with. Common people God wants to use. Father, I thank you for this story of common guys that to me are heroic. They're despised in their day and age. But I think they're heroic when we look at how you use them because they responded the right way. Help us to respond the right way. We've got even more knowledge of Jesus. We've got more information. But help us to run into the Word of God this week to learn more. Help us to put aside all those other priorities and busynesses and spend time glorifying and praising you. Help us to take the time to learn to get more information about this character as we continue this series even this evening and talk about others' comments about him. And man, there's so much insight into these texts about Christ. Help us to run to the opportunity to be under the teaching of the word to help us this Christmas to become closer to him. God, if there's any here who are, who are either in this room or listening, if they're not born again, I pray, please, Help them to come to Christ, to know that he can give them the peace that passes all understanding. Father, if there's some here who are hesitating to dedicate, to yield, help them to realize that God uses availability. And he creates tremendous results by individuals through individuals who just give, their, give what they have to Christ, give their hearts and give their, what times they have. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the folks' attentiveness. Thank you for their patience despise, despite my weak, weakness in voice. But help us to live the word, not just learn it. Help us to live it. Help us to be encouraged to magnify Christ even more this week. If you're here and you are not sure you're on your way to heaven, folk, as I close here in a moment in prayer, I'll gladly stay here at the front and talk with you. If you're watching online, please, Call us, contact us. We'll share with you from the Word of God how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. God, thank you. Bless if there's some who are curious. Help them to have the boldness to seek out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.